0: Well, I was very afraid of what the reaction would be because when you ask someone to visualize pictures, everyone everyone has a different imagination. You know, not everyone can see what, what I'm going to see. And frankly, the illustrators, what they turned in was far better than anything I imagined. But one thing I've learned from, you know, back when I used to work in publishing is that if something does become successful, the money gets very important very quickly and people can get really angry if they feel like you know if, if you bought all the illustrations for like a thousand dollars or something like that and then how do you go how do you work backwards and like fix that and make everybody feel well compensated. So the way to get ahead of that is to just say look your art is about 10% of the book. I'm going to give you 10% of the money. Your art is another 10% of the book you get 10% of the money. Uh I'll keep 80% and we'll all be happy uh and we are all happy <laughs>
1: Hey, welcome back to Bestsellers. I'm Phil Williams,
2: and I'm Natalie Jamieson.
1: And I'm really excited about today's guest because it's somebody I first discovered in the mid, I reckon, around 2014, 2015, with a book, an Impossible Fortress, and invited this person onto my then radio show, and realised why the book was so good because he's such a wonderful person. And uh, I'm going to level with you now.
0: Mm.
2: You're leveling with me, or are you leveling with everyone else listening.
1: <laughs> I'm leveling with you, the listener, okay. not you, Natalie <laughs> Jameson. But, um I so it's Jason Reculak. It's R E K U L A K. He's a brilliant writer. He's only done two books. First one was an Impossible Fortress, and we we will discuss that with you. But we're going to major on Hidden Pictures, which is his latest book, which is just superb. And um, I hit him up on Instagram. And said, listen, that's where you fancy coming on, expecting that we'd have to go through a world of pain to get the booking to happen. And he just went, yeah, pick a date, pick a time, send me a Zoom, I'm there. I'm like, wow, how refreshing is that?
2: Yeah, and in terms of like, oh, and uh, you were like, I've, I've read the book, but Natalie hasn't. He was like, oh, let me email it to her. And I was like,
1: okay. Oh, yeah, i have forgotten Thanks. that. Yeah, and then he sent so you nice. a better version, which comes out yeah, in the interview. Right? You had yeah. a better version than the one I've got, because you've got some extras.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's the, the book is the same. It's just there's like a, a bonus section mm. at the end that is really interesting if you've enjoyed what you've read.
1: Mm. Very nicely put.
2: Thanks, so, you're yeah. welcome.
1: Uh, we'll hear from Jason Recklack in a sec and Hidden Pictures. And um, this does feature one of your cats.
2: It does briefly feature, um, you see if you can spot like there's a couple of times where I might sound a bit distracted because <laughs> one of my kids kept pushing open the door to where I'm recording this and throwing various cats into the room. Um, again, I'll repeat, I've got four cats. It's not an affliction. It's just the way life is. Um, and then kept reopening the door when said cats wanted to leave the room as well. <laughs> <So> <laughs> that was happening. It's, it's fine. It's basically, you know, just my day to day.
1: Four cats, two kids. This is a woman who likes self inflicted pain.
2: Uh, One husband, I feel I should add, in in that scenario as well. I was kind Um, of thinking that he
1: doesn't, he's not the painful. He's the least painful part of the equation.
2: Well, he does listen. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't listen. He never listens. Uh, Not at all. It's more that I am the crazy cat lady uh, trope is one Mm. of, is another bugbear of mine because I I genuinely don't see why that. (laughs) why it's a bad thing
1: why what yeah i don't understand that one either to be honest with you why is it that solitary living of a certain age and a certain gender goes with insanity
2: yeah but also it's a bit like the uh uh you know elderly gentleman with the with the dog is really sad it's like why is that sad it's like it's nice they've got company do
1: you know what would put me off being an elderly gentleman with a dog What? they're always the ones that find the bodies Oh. You, don't you think? Whenever you sit on the news, it's always the body was discovered by a passerby, and then they interview them, and he's got a dog on the lead, and he says, "Yeah, I was just walking my dog, and next thing I saw this."
2: Oh, that has literally never crossed my mind until now. Um, but uh, yeah, interesting. You should you should put that into a book, Phil,
1: or go and see a psychiatrist.
2: Either way, um, whilst we ponder our next steps in life, uh, <laughs> have a listen to here's Jason.
1: I'm very excited to tell you about our next guest on bestsellers because it's a writer whose work I first fell in love with kind of in the mid, whatever you call the decade between 10 and 20 and uh, an impossible fortress was just a really, really good. Um, what I felt like a, almost a Goonie style teen adventure from an era when I was busy playing on my spectrum and some of the characters were also developing games for a first batch of personal computers. And now um jason Reculac is back with a completely different standalone story and i i'm almost more excited about that because i admire the fact that he's gone completely different to to the first book really so uh jason joins us now and thanks so much for doing this again it's really nice to reconnect with you, you know i'm a huge fan of your work i can't believe this is only book two i just checked with jason before we started talking to you that i hadn't missed any <laughs>
0: Oh, it's great to be here. It's great to be on your show. I've been enjoying listening to the uh, previous episodes, and oh, um, cool. I feel very flattered to be here. I mean, you've had some real heavy hitters, some all-stars. Anthony. Yeah.
2: I, I feel very flattered that you you listened, and we yeah, honestly exactly. didn't pay yeah, you yeah. anything.
0: So. <laughs> um, no, it's really fun. I love the kind of podcast you're doing, because there's so many for movies and TV shows and for music, but there just aren't that many really good ones for books and where where novelists talk about their work you know you can hear directors talk all day long on podcasts yeah um but hearing novelists talk uh it, it's you know it's much less common so
1: and as you probably picked up we're re- both we're both really keen to make sure that some of the I don't know if you feel this is a global thing or just a British thing but we feel there's a fair bit of snobbery attached to reading and that whenever the most prestigious prize lists come out you guys are never on them or seldom on them and it's like <laughs> We just want to make sure that what we're doing is saying to we get asked probably three or four times a week. Hey, you know, you know, what should we read? And we want to make sure that the books that are at the mainstream, populist, really easy to enjoy books are the ones that are getting talked about.
0: Yeah. Well, no. I listen. I appreciate that. Um, I had more reviews in the UK than I did in the US. I had zero reviews in the US. Um, like there, there were no print reviews. Um, really despite the fact that the book is now sold in the U S like a hundred thousand hardcovers, you know? So like, so people are finding it, despite the fact that, you know, it was not the subject of any kind of critical acclaim. Jason, Um, I saw
1: one review that was quite good. Um, it said hidden pictures by Jason Recklack, one of a kind thriller in stores now buy it and save it for the weekend. You won't put it down. And that was Stephen King.
0: Yes. God bless him. Um, Mm -hmm. He, he's. Uh, I've been reading him since I was twelve years old. Um, so to get that uh, tweet, you know, was uh, I, I haven't framed it yet. But I'm like, I there must be a way to like print this out and like frame it. Uh, and did keep you know it. it
1: was coming at all, or was it random?
0: Um, I was hoping that you know, if you know, you, you dream about you know, your, you who who could you get to blurb your book and, um, but. You know, it, the request felt like throwing a, a message in a bottle, and then throwing the bottle in the ocean. You you don't even know if it's going to get where you want it to go. Um, so, uh, so when that came in, that was uh, I was just over the moon. Um, I can't even imagine how many requests he gets a day from authors and publishers, and the fact that he actually goes through this what I imagine to be like an enormous mountain of manuscripts and actually read some of them. Um, I don't know how he does it. Uh, and it's amazing though. It's super generous, super kind of thing to do. So I
2: imagine maybe he's as quick a reader as he is a writer. So, But I'm also kind of intrigued to know, like if he does that thing, where does he read like that? What does he do first? Does he read the back like, cover? Does he read the synopsis? Does he like jump into like chapter one and like read two pages? What's his test, you know?
0: Sure. No, I, well, I think my own personal theory, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I think one thing that helped me is my book does have these weird illustrations in it. And I imagine if he just took a flip, just, just see what mm. it is, maybe one of those caught his eye and, it, you know, it inspired him to take a closer look just to find out what was going on. Cause if you just flip through the pages of my book, it doesn't look like a normal traditional novel.
2: Um, no. Well, so can you just set that up, set that up for us a bit more for people who don't know what the premise is for this book
0: yeah sure so the premise it's about a, a young woman named mallory she um as the story opens we know she has a troubled past but we don't know the details and she's looking to make a fresh start so she takes a job um as a live-in nanny for a family in a very affluent suburb and they have a five-year-old boy named teddy um And one of the unique things about Teddy is that he loves to draw. He's always drawing pictures. Um, He was kind of inspired very much by my daughter, who, when she was five, was always drawing pictures. We just had stacks and stacks of papers all over the house because my wife wouldn't throw any of them away. It's so
2: hard to. It's so
0: hard. (laughs) um, And as she's on the job, what happens is that Teddy's drawings start to take a turn toward the sinister, and they start getting um, peculiar and violent. And he seems to have access to things that a five-year-old shouldn't know about. And um, and what is unique about the book is I wanted these images to appear in the book almost as like documentary evidence. So every time Mallory finds a picture, the story stops. And rather than me describing the pictures with language, I just present the pictures. And so what I was trying to do is create this experience where the reader we're sort of like working alongside Mallory to figure out this mystery, and and we we know as much as Mallory does throughout the whole story because we're seeing the same things she does, actual size, <laughs> and um, and so the book invites you to sort of linger over these pictures and try to make sense of them uh, as she's doing it in real time. You know, just trying to figure out what's going on with this kid, where are these pictures coming from, and is it possible that there are clues to a kind of mystery?
1: See, I thought that was a genius move, Nat, didn't you? Because well uh, so my kids are six and three natalie's are a bit older but you've been through that drawing phase right and so what it did was it gave me an extra element of mystery because obviously i'm taking in detail from the prose but i turned the page and saw the first drawing i thought okay yeah 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 that's the kind of thing my six-year-old would do and then as you progress through the book i'm like there's no way a five-year-old kid's doing that there's no way right and it, <laughs> so it, it either meant it just made me question everything more than i would have done if i was just following the narrative does that make that's probably what you wanted right Sure, yeah,
0: absolutely.
2: And also yeah. I think the, the different experience because so you read it in a, a hard copy That's right. and yeah. I read it on my uh, e-reader, my Kindle. And it was really, um, the experience of reading it digitally was brilliant, but I think also added an extra dimension because I didn't, I hadn't flicked through, I don't think anybody really flicks through a Kindle, right? You just kind of do it in order. So you sort of say in the prose, they'll be like, you know, Mallory took the picture from Teddy and then the rest of the screen goes blank. So, you know, when you tap it, there's going to be a picture coming next, but you've got no clue <laughs> how <laughs> evil or what the picture is going to be. So when I was like reading it late at night, I was like, do, do I tap? Like, do wh- I'm going to tap? <laughs> and, like Easton, I was, like, <laughs> didn't know what was
0: coming. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. The Kindle really is perfect for that. We worked with the book. You know, there's a trick if you work... um, in comic books you know they know that the the artists always put the big surprises and reveals on the left page so that when you turn the page you see the surprise and so we did that with the hardcover too we're always trying to get the most surprising images on the left um but with the kindle it's great because there you know everything is a surprise like every time you tap it you never know what's going to pop up yeah yeah we should
1: shout out the illustrators right because there were two people that did it weren't they
0: yeah, Will Staley and Doogie Horner, um, very very talented um, guys. I, I've known them a long time, and um, they were very uh, they, they were they were the whole impetus for this book. I just wanted to work with them on something, and uh, I asked them if they would draw the pictures for my mystery, and they said, "Great, what's it about?" And I said, "I don't know. I'll get back to you." <laughs> and they said, Great, we're in. Um, <laughs> it, it, it became this project, so.
1: Let me ask you, um, so that's very early on, right, before you've even plopped, plop, mapped out your plot. Did you get any pushback from uh, from the publisher? Because I'm not sure I've seen a book like this. This is, feels very unique to me. So when you go in and you pitch your story and go, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring the kids' drawings to life with two illustrators. Do they go, no, you're not?
0: Well, I was very afraid of what the reaction would be because when you ask someone to visualize pictures, everyone everyone has a different imagination you know not everyone can see what what i'm going to see and frankly the illustrators what they turned in was far better than anything i imagined you know so we did everything um on spec uh and we realized that was the only way to explain to publishers what this was i think we have to give them the complete manuscript with every clue in place every illustration has to be done so there's no doubt in, in their mind about what they're getting you know this is it this is the book um otherwise i don't know how we could have sold it i think it would have been a lot harder you know if we had like notes saying well there's going to be a picture here of x mm-hmm. um i think it would have been a less persuasive uh package so
1: so was there a massive risk then did you have to kind of commission the artists and pay them yourself bearing in mind yeah. that the book might never have made it
0: you know that th- that's <laughs> that's that's why i'm so grateful to them um I basically just made a deal with them basically saying, I will give, I'll just tell you, I mean, I gave each of them 10% of what I got. That was the deal. I said, so, you know, if it's a huge success, we will all be very, very happy. And if it's not, I don't know. It just seemed like the right number to me, you know, because we didn't even know if we would sell it, you you know? Um, But one thing I've learned from, you know, back when I used to work in publishing is that if something does become successful, the money gets very important very quickly, and people can get really angry if they feel like you know, if if you bought all the illustrations for like a thousand dollars or something like that. And then yeah. how do you how do you work backwards and like fix that and make everybody feel well compensated? So the way to get ahead of that is to just say, look, your art is about ten percent of the book. I'm going to give you ten percent of the money. Your art is another ten percent of the book. You get ten percent of the money. Uh, I'll keep eighty percent, and we'll all be happy. Uh, and we are all happy. <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, so that's, that's
2: good. Yeah, that's cool. Well, it's yeah, it's smart as well. But I, you know, I can imagine that those conversations, everyone finds them awkward to have, right? Even though you kind of know how to do it and we're all grown-ups and
0: and the yeah. artists, they don't even care about the money. Will is like, just buy me dinner. Just buy me dinner. Call it even. And I'm like, that's wonderful of you to say, but you might not feel that way after we sell 100,000 books. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, know? you might want more than dinner. So let's just work it out now. <laughs>
2: So for people who don't know, what was your role previously in publishing?
0: Uh, well, so I uh, I worked for a small publisher in Philadelphia that uh, you probably are not familiar with. It's called Quirk Books, um, and I was the publisher. And um, so, you know, we had very modest advances. Uh, we rarely bought books from agents because we couldn't compete with, you know, your HarperCollins or Random House or whoever. Um So, uh, but one thing we did to uh, distinguish ourselves and and to draw people's attention was we did spend a lot of time playing with the forms of books. Um, Mm -hmm. I loved working with illustrators and designers and photographers um, and even printers um, just to try to experiment with like things you could do with the physical form of a book. Um, And so all that training really I think I, I think all, all that training really benefited me when I sat down to create hidden pictures because I I'd sort of learned lessons from a lot of different kinds of books, graphic novels, uh, children's picture books, you know, travel books, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you could sort of apply it to um, a mystery with illustrated clues.
1: And what would you say this book is? I know what I think it is. Okay. And I know people love sticking labels on stuff. But if I was sending it to somebody, I would say, well, no, you go first. You go first.
0: Well, I mean, I, I guess it depends on how many words I'm allowed to use. I I sometimes call it a supernatural thriller or a suspense thriller. I don't really call it a horror novel because I have I don't think it's really – I've read a lot of horror novels, and I don't think my book is a horror novel. I don't
1: either, and I think, so I'm think i glad you said that. I, I would call it a psychological thriller. And the reason why I'm kind of sticking on this a little bit is I would not want people to be put off discovering your amazing book because they might see the word horror attached to it. I'm not a massive horror fan. I love Stephen King's work, but some of the more, like Carrie, I've not read some of the more horror-specific ones I've not gone with, but like the Mr. Mercedes series, and, all, and that's very me. And even some of the more supernatural stuff is me. I can buy some of that and um I seen online I did a search and a couple of people have called your book horror and I wonder whether that might stop people from like you were a little worried weren't you, Nat? you Natalie said to me how scary is it going to be I said it's not that scary it's not going to stop you sleeping
2: let, okay let's just clarify I do like scary things uh, when I was at university I did my dissertation on zombie movies so I'm fine with scary right. things but it was more that I tend to do most of my reading
1: Late at night?
2: Uh, late at night. So when everyone else is asleep I'm the only one awake reading for about an hour um in the dark with <laughs> my Kindle so that was my query about should I like and I kind of I kept dipping in and out uh reading it late at well, night. tell
1: Jason the weirdest bit is then when she woke up in the morning these charcoal drawings <laughs> are on her bed and she's like how's that
0: happen?
2: <laughs> <laughs> But I think it's a really valid point though because you know to some people like horror might be an incentive to pick it yeah, up but fair. it's, it's really fair. hard to gauge you know I know Uh, I haven't, well, I'm sure obviously some people have read all of Stephen King's work, but I've kind of dipped in and out over the years. But I read Joyland of his recently, which is an incredible book. And it's it's really spooky, but I wouldn't call that one necessarily a horror at all either.
0: Right. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, it is, my book doesn't sort of, I mean, I feel like my book has a mystery with Mm. a, surprising solution but i don't think miss i don't think the mystery audience says well this is a mystery and i think my book has elements of horror but i don't think the horror audience says this uh, is- yeah yeah so it's just this book that sort of sits in a lot of different categories um but i guess if i had to pick one i, I would i would call it a thriller or a psychological thriller or a supernatural thriller yeah. And
1: I think it's that's- great that it's a you, you feel there's a bit of everything in there because one of the complaints actually less so with books to be fair but one of the complaints you and I have about films is that there's just so much of the same stuff coming out, and it? it's all superheroes this that and the other sequel this that and the other. this is a to me this that's was a like, that's not my unique... biggest
2: complaint with films my biggest <laughs> I think my biggest complaint with films is um I hate when they give too much away in the trailer like I love a trailer and you I feel like you it but it's the same with the synopsis right like I you only you only need a little bit like they always like then certainly in the movie world i think trailers now sometimes when they give away the whole plot of the film i'm like that was a bit silly but
1: what i was building to to asking you jason Mm. is really if with creative world is it frustrating where um people either want to give it a label or they want to say it's like this because they feel that helps to sell but actually then what those same people will go oh there's nothing unique anymore what's up yeah because you're telling people to give you the same old
0: shit yeah um well, I don't know. I mean...
2: That's almost like going, Jason, can you just solve publishing for us?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been a publisher, Jason. It's all on you. <laughs> I... I, don't, I mean, my publisher has been great. They're like, do whatever you want. Um, you know, and then I went from, as you noted earlier, one very different book to this book. Um, and, um, you know, it, it doesn't really it's not the smartest thing to do commercially because you, you, you'll, you'll struggle to build an audience that way. You know, John Grisham fans know that John Grisham is always going to deliver, you know, a knockout legal thriller mm. and not a Western you know, or something. <laughs> um, so, um, but you know, I'm I'm working on another thriller right now and I don't think there's any supernatural component to it. So um you know, I don't feel like I'm stuck in a box where, like, I always have to have a, a ghost or a monster now. Um, but I think, you know, I would like to try to write another suspenseful story, another page-turner.
2: Yeah. I think now would be a really good time to hear a bit of the book, uh, if that's all right with you, Jason. Which sure. which section do you want to read? Does it need any setup or are you going from the top?
0: Well, there is a little bit of a setup. Uh, I'll just read the short passage. Um this is uh, in chapter two. Mallory's gone on a job interview for the family I mentioned earlier, and it is one of these sections with illustrations. So what happens is the mother uh, the mother and the five-year-old boy are in the room with Mallory, the babysitter, and um, they say, would you like to see some of Teddy's drawings? And so they give this big stack of pictures, and you see them in the book. As you're looking, there's a picture of a goat. There's a picture of a tree. There's a picture of some birds in a bird bath. And the last one in the sequence is this little boy, who we know is Teddy, standing next to this tall, wraith-like figure who has almost like a skull-like face and long, dark hair. And it's all looks like it's drawn by a five-year-old. And you see this picture, and then you just, you're just you right back in the narrative and the text uh, and what I'm going to read to you right now. Caroline seems surprised to find this last picture in the stack. I meant to set this one aside, she says but now she has no choice but to explain it. This is Teddy and his um, special friend. Anya, Teddy says. Her name is Anya. Right, Anya, Caroline says, winking at me, encouraging me to play along. We all love Anya because she plays with Teddy while mommy and daddy are working. I realize Anya must be some kind of weird imaginary playmate, so I try to say something nice. I bet it's great having Anya around, especially if you're a little boy in a new town and you haven't met the other children yet. Exactly. Caroline is relieved that I've grasped the situation so quickly. That's exactly right. Is Anya here now? Is she in the room with us? Teddy glances around the den. No. Where is she? I don't know. Will you see her later tonight? I see her every night, Teddy says. She sleeps under my bed so I can hear her singing. So, that's a little taste of the job interview.
1: (laughs) That's good. It sets it up perfectly, really, with with where it's, it's... A slightly tricky book to discuss the plot of because we don't want to do spoilers either. So it's, I'm it's,
2: finding it really hard. By the way, because I just want to go. Can you just? I just want to talk to you about the ending and how you did. Yeah, but I'm not going to do that, obviously. So
1: not wanting to slap loads of banners on, but there's more to this than just being a thriller as well. I want people to know that there are elements of romance involved in this. There's kind of what I suppose the publishers would like to call domestic noir. There's there's a lot going on, right?
0: Yeah, and there's there's a whole. You know, it's, 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 uh, there are lots of twists and turns and surprises. And, uh, all I can say, because I, I know, I know what you want to talk about. Ed,
2: <laughs> Everybody must want to talk to you about
0: that. <laughs> I will say that I knew the ending of this book before I started writing it. I knew okay. all of the, um, and so that actually made it, and, and that's not always the case when I sit down to write a book, but in this instance, I knew what all the answers were, which actually made writing this book, uh, I don't want to say easy, easy is overstating it, but it was a lot of fun. Um, Mm -hmm. It's really great when you have a map and you sit down and you know exactly where you're going and you don't waste a lot of time. You're not painting yourself into corners and chasing dead ends because I was always working toward a very specific reveal um, and all the clues and pictures are pointing toward that reveal. So having that information up front boy, as as a writer, that really helped my process tremendously.
2: And how much was the, in terms of your, from the however many drafts this went through and the editing process as well, did you have to like rub out some of the clues that you'd put in the text of the mystery? Because, you know, there are little breadcrumbs that you don't necessarily notice, but obviously they're all kind of foretelling something that's going to happen, but you just don't realise it until it happens, right? Did you... Did everything kind of land as you wanted to, or did you have to take some stuff out?
0: I think I'm sure I went back and and took things out and put things in um, along the way. Um, absolutely, but um, but but still, I mean, I, I don't know. It was not. It was not nearly as. I mean, I don't know that. I uh, some people. You know, you hear this debate about, and I think you've talked about this on your show, about plotters versus pantsers, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. You had to plot this book. Like, if you, yeah. if you tried to pants it, you, you, I, I would have been lost in a labyrinth trying to figure out, you know, the illustrators would be drawing pictures that we would be throwing away and never using, you know? That was the other thing. Working with them forced me to be really disciplined because I didn't want to waste their time. I didn't want them to give up on me or give up on the book and leave me because then I'd have no pictures and i have <laughs> no project um like if they quit i was in trouble uh, um so <laughs> did, that was a. did that ever come close no 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 not right. at all they're the nicest guys in the world they would they would never have quit but i was just you know trying to um be respectful of the time and um and i knew that they were not making any money so you know there was a chance that they did not get paid at all
1: uh, can I ask uh, about, um, sorry, Can I just about, before that, yeah. that just because it's a natural follow-on, mm. did they ever help you to shape the narrative? Did you ever say to them, look, I'm stuck, and they go, well, hang on, what about
0: this? Well, they never... They, they did help me tremendously, um, because what would happen a lot is I would see... Um, I would have, you know, a sort of limited vision for an illustration. They would turn in something that was, you know, much better and 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 more fully realized than anything i could have imagined and um case in point this will mean nothing to your readers who haven't read the book but the last picture in the book i, I struggled for a long time with how to end the book um i'll show it to you because no one's going to see this no, right. no, no. so it's this one right yeah uh, right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i always knew the book should end with some illustration i was like well that that should be how this book ends it ends with a picture and i thought early on i thought well in the spirit of a horror movie, it the natural thing to do would be to end with a scary picture. Cause that's the way a horror movie would end or a ghost story would end where like, it's not over, it's happening again. Um, but then as they started turning in their art and once they turned in, you know, this drawing early on, which uh, Mallory gets on her job interview. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the one I referenced earlier, when I saw these two, I thought, Oh, there would be this wonderful symmetry. If the last illustration like mirrored the first illustration um and so again like that was just a result of them turning in the artwork and me looking at it and thinking oh you know how how can i make everything as integrated as tightly as possible and um and that happened a couple times i mean that's the one that's the most uh that's the one i remember the most because i was so happy when i when i landed on it because i just i love i love that last picture that's my favorite picture in the book and um and and they were the ones who helped me figure it out so. It
2: is a really good picture to end on, I think. And hopefully this just means that anybody listening is going to want to read this book so they can to see, see it, the pictures yeah. that we're talking about. And <laughs> um, yeah. I wanted to ask about choosing to write from, because most of this book is, is, you know, it's from Mallory's perspective, who's a female, quite young woman. Um, and whether that's something that you enjoyed to do anyway, or was that driven by plot as well, by the fact that, You wanted Mallory to have this job looking after Teddy and it doesn't kind of play as well if you have, is it a bit creepy if you have like a man? Like it shouldn't be really, but was that kind of in your head as well?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, maybe that idea crossed my mind for about two seconds and I was like, (laughs) well, it it would just be a distraction if there was a young Mm -hmm. The uh, whole time
2: you'd be thinking, like, is it a beautiful? Yeah. <laughs> like, right.
0: I um, you just. Which is it, like, I
2: think it's re- is a really sad thing to say as well. Like, we're all parents <laughs> talking here, and it's ridiculous that that's the thought that does come into people's heads, sadly.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. So I knew it had to be a young woman, you know, thinking back to like, there's a tradition of uh, babysitters being haunted by things, going back to like the turn of the screw. And I was like, you know, it it I want to do a contemporary version of that with a young woman um in uh who's from South Philly and I live in, in Philadelphia in, in the US. So uh and I always felt comfortable. I never I don't I mean, you know, I'm married, I have a daughter, I have like friends who are women and neighbors. Like I feel like it's easier for me to imagine writing like Mallory's voice than say like a male judge <laughs> like <a male laughs> I don't know you know what I mean like just yeah. you know um like she's just a, a woman from South Philly and I felt really comfortable writing in that voice um so yeah I mean
2: it totally worked for me as well and um I also just wanted to ask about the love philadelphia by the way I've got some really good friends who live in Philly haven't been there for years um Gosh. but the I research you do that
1: thing then that people do we get you know them
2: <laughs> no I wasn't yeah my head i was like we've been yeah they like live in abington um which always made me laugh because i grew up in abingdon in the uk it's like such a dumb thing uh but i was going to ask about the research um project that mallory gets involved in that starts the book so it's not a spoiler where but it's kind of an interesting intriguing notion to set up whether that's a real thing
0: yeah so at the beginning of the book mallory is um She's looking for money and she volunteers for this research experiment where um, they're sort of doing a test to see if you can sense the, the the male gaze on your on your body. So she puts on a blindfold and she's in this room and these people are looking at her with like stopwatches and she has to raise her hand if they're looking at her or in the lower hand if they're looking at the floor. And um, now there's no evidence that this is a real phenomenon, <laughs> you know, but... I still feel like it is. <laughs> because, <laughs> like, I swear to you, I've been in the room and I can feel my cat looking at me, you know, like and I just like <laughs> turn and I'm like, oh, she's she's watching me. I sensed it myself. Um I don't know. Um we don't know. I mean it's it's,
2: it's a great premise. Like it's it sets that up really well and it, it does kind of give you that that notion of we all know what it's like, I think. You must know it as well, right, Phil? Like if you you sense that somebody's staring at you. Um,
1: yeah, of course. Yeah, you get a feeling, that you get an eerie feeling. Or, or the one, the other one I get this comparable is where you, you um, someone enters your field of conduct. Like yesterday, I called a really good friend of mine from university who I hadn't spoken to for about three months because something made me think I need to call her. And actually everything was fine, but I can't explain why that entered my head that day and not the day before. It's yeah, that yeah. kind of... And it's really crucial to this storyline, isn't it? Because we need to know that Mallory has this affinity with Teddy where they can go on that journey together and that it's credible and believable. Because I did an event with Harlan Coburn last night, and he was talking about the ending of his new book. And if you make a slightest change of detail, it becomes a different book. And so whilst this has supernatural overtones, I'm not sure, did you want me as a reader to be going, did this happen or didn't it happen? Or did you actually want me to go with it more and go, how did it happen?
0: I think I was trying to... You know, with this kind of story, you know, again, going back to the turn of the screw, you know, it's traditional for the narrator to always be a little bit unreliable, you know, mm-hmm. where it's like, you know, is she really seeing all these outlandish things? Mm-hmm. And, it, and of course, no one's going to believe her, <laughs> you know. Um, so that experiment does sort of serve that function in this book because um mm-hmm. you know, she 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 sort of presents it as something that she things maybe happened to her but didn't she's not really sure that it did happen and so almost immediately like before you even get to the real core of the story she's sort of a questionable narrator and it establishes like the sense of doubt that i wanted to have throughout the book um and i yeah. won't spoil whether or not she's telling the truth
2: <laughs> uh, neither will we at this point i feel like there should be like an add on where we're like and then this yeah but
0: like a, a bonus feature
1: to the dvd <laughs>
2: We're going to actually talk about the ending. Come but... back to this
1: bit once you've read the book. <laughs> yeah, that might be a good I'm incentive. Sure...
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it must be, that's all you must get, right? When you meet readers who've read it, do they just go straight to the ending?
0: Um, you know, people do comment on the ending a lot. And, um, in you know, when I see, like, reviews online, social media posts and things like that, people, I have yet to hear from anyone who has said, yeah, I saw the ending coming. No. Uh, <laughs> So, um, so that's really satisfying because uh, I was nervous about it. I was like, I'm not sure this is, is this going to work. It's like, whoa! But if it works, it'll be so. Mm.
1: Do you Some test of... it? Do you run it by people? Anthony Horowitz on this podcast says that he runs it by his other half to to make sure she can't guess it.
0: No, I don't think I would have been able to run it past someone, but I did tell the illustrators what I was doing, right? And, and um, and they were like, okay, that seems like that could you know. <laughs> work. But uh I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that I would have been able to like relay the whole story to somebody uh and have it work.
1: Because they wouldn't have believed you.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and this is clearly something that I should have looked up before we came on to chat this evening, but has the rights been brought for film or TV? What's this? Is there any status yes. update on that?
0: Um yeah, you know uh, um it's, they're with Netflix um and so they're adapting it as a feature film not a series so it'll mm-hmm. just hopefully I mean you know I think it should be like an hour and 45 minutes you know uh I'm sort of my my pet peeve with movies are is three hour movies yeah <laughs> which is so, happening more and more right right, right. <laughs> I mean movies that never used to be three hours are three hours Mm-mm. now. So Um, at time of
1: recording, I'm going to go and see John Wick 4 tomorrow. By the time this is out, you've probably all seen it, but I'm going to go on on the opening day here in the UK. And I just was booking it. And then when you book it, it tells you what time it will finish. I went, that can't be right. It's quarter past four in the afternoon. And then it says it's 2 hours 49. It's John Wick 4. He's just kicking ass. We know he's kicking (laughs) ass. What do I have to do in
0: 2 hours 49? How much ass does he have to kick? Right. No, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, you know, if you think back to like the old action movies, they were an hour and a half. Predator you know i yeah. die hard mm-hmm. even die hard wraps up in like less than two hours i think um so uh two hours and 49 minutes seems excessive but...
2: yeah so it's with netflix is it are you involved in exec producing or writing or anything
0: no not really i mean i think in in, in an honorary title sort of way i i am but I mean, realistically, like just between us and your listeners. <laughs> oh, I, I think they're they're, they're going to do their they're going to do their thing. It's an interesting place right now. I I'm not sure what's happening. I hope it gets made. There's talk of a Writers Guild strike um, coming mm. up. So, uh. you know th- that could work in my favor because you know you I think a lot of scripts will get greenlit and scripts that may not be ready yet, but just for the sake of like having a script. Um yeah. if writers actually go on strike. Um, they may just go with whatever they have right now thinking, well, something's better than nothing. Um, I haven't seen it or read it. So I, uh, you know, I can't speak to how it is, but. um,
1: Are you willing uh, to abdicate that level of control over something that's quite personal to you and the illustrators?
0: uh, Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, the book is the book. The book is always the book. The book will always exist. Um, And.
1: Jason let me take you back to um, an impossible fortress because I really want people to discover your work I'm I'm so passionate about people finding great books and that first book w- was it just made me feel warm and fuzzy throughout I remember that that feeling and kind of taking me back to being 13 14 and riding around on my BMX and trying to be bigger than I actually was in age you know um, tell me about uh, how you how you conceived that and uh, what has happened to that book since because it's become a bit of a cult thing hasn't it
0: yeah i mean it's it's as its fans um it was um it's a it's a it was a pretty autobiographical coming-of-age novel um inspired by my own experiences i was a self-taught computer programmer when i was in high school and i spent a lot of time making my own video games and i thought that's what i wanted to do for a living and this is back at a time when you know, video games were made by a single person. So it was kind of a really exciting time if you were into computers back then because you did the graphics, you did the sound, you did the storytelling, you did the coding, you 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 drew the box sometimes, um, or the ziploc bag or however you were selling this creation. <laughs> um and so it's a it's a story set in that world. Um and uh, you know, there's a I don't know if this was popular in the UK. There's a book called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Do you know that you novel? You've just read it now, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. It's so good. I loved Every it. Seven. So, yeah. you know. Um, I think it's set, you know, a few years after Impossible Fortress, but it's sort of similar kind of story about these two people who uh, in my book it's a, it's a boy and a girl, and they're they're creating this game together called the Impossible Fortress, and they're sort of bonding in real life and in like this game. Um and, and there's a s- slightly similar kind of relationship in tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, and so I won't be surprised if we see more and more stories about this. I was like, you know, video games now, you know. Um, I, I just you know, you, they're, they're just more and more a part of people's lives, even things that you don't think of as games. Like my wife plays solitaire all the time on her iPad. You know, she's always mm-hmm. playing solitaire. She's yeah. playing a game. It's not a Call of Duty, you know. Yeah. She's yeah. sniping assassins. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but she does spend time gaming every week, um, as more and more people do. So uh, it'd be interesting to see how more novels um, begin to speak to this.
1: It's a really um, warm and funny book, and uh, really, if you're a certain age, it's really easy for you to then reminisce about your own kind of t- early teen adventures, and that that's one of the things I really loved about it. I also really loved Hidden Pictures, but they're completely different. It, explain the, the journey to me. What, were you under any pressure to do some kind of follow-up to Fortress?
0: Well, I mean, that's the problem with writing a coming of age novel and then going to write your next book is well, what do you do next? Are you going to write another coming of age novel? You know, I came of age once. I think like, I mined all of my experiences. I had nothing left to do. Um, it didn't
1: trouble John Hughes, though, did it? He did quite a few of them, didn't he? In movies, I mean. Mm.
0: No, you're right. You're absolutely right. Um, but I just couldn't think of another one. I was just sort of like, well, I don't know. Um, and so. Um, so I sort of flailed about for a little bit. And I remember my editor was suggesting that I try to maybe capture like the emotional feelings of Impossible Fortress, another book. So I actually spent, again, just between me and you and your listeners, uh, <laughs> I spent about two years writing a book. Um, I won't describe it because it hurts too much to talk about it, oh. But <laughs> it, The book just was kind of like a misfire. I, I was just trying to like sort of, it was a it was a non genre book that was a big ambitious book about a beach town. It was about one hundred and thirty thousand words, and I don't think anybody in publishing knew what to do with it. They're like, "What is this?" Like, you know, and um, and I could speculate about why the book didn't work for people, but it certainly was not the most commercial idea I've ever had. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe not the easiest book to pitch. Um, So at that point.
2: So was that a case of you wrote, you spent two years writing that book, and then that specific manuscript didn't sell?
0: Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah, it wasn't pre-sold. I I was just, Mm. I was doing it all on spec. Um, Now, at this point, I was already, uh, I had left my day job, and I was, you know, theoretically employed (laughs) as a writer. And I was like, well, I guess I have to do this again. I guess this is like what the next step is I have to write another book after spending two years on this book that did not sell, which seemed like the most daunting thing in the world. And which is what led me to think, you know, what would be, you know, would be good is if I was partnering with an illustrator or two. So I, so I wasn't doing this all by myself again, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and that's what inspired me to reach out to Will and say, Hey, you know, I have this project. You want to work on it with me together, so I don't have to do another one by myself. Um, and um, and this, so that's that's what led me to to hidden pictures. That's, that's really interesting, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah, it is. And uh, I so both Phil and I write as well. Kell surprise, <laughs> um, and uh, I I've got a literary agent and. Um, I'm writing my second one after my first book didn't sell with publishers and that only happened last year. So similarly, I'm like, I spent so long writing a book and you hear all these stories, you know that it happens to, you know, practically everyone that books don't sell or, you know, it's like book five that suddenly hit or yeah, whatever it is yeah. and stuff. But even so, when it happens, you're like, I just spent a really long time writing something that I I really liked and doesn't seem like other people felt it was viable, and that's just really frustrating, annoying, and you didn't get paid for it. <laughs> yeah.
0: No, absolutely, and it's 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 incredibly incredibly common.
1: Yeah. Right? But, yeah. But how, can I be really you yeah. and go, what what do you do? How do you like literally put food on the table? If you are a you know a professional writer, and the book doesn't sell, and you've given up the day job, like you just said. Right. What do you do? Because already that's bringing me out in hives just even thinking. About it. <laughs>
0: Well, fortunately, the only reason I was able to do it was because I had – part of the reason I left the day job is because I'd I'd sold The Impossible Fortress to Netflix, and I had a screenwriting deal on that one. Right. So I had revenue from that. Right. um, That put food on the table. (laughs) Um, Yeah. uh, So really, the the uh, lesson
1: is, if if you're listening to this and you want to get a book away, you need some kind of a a safety net, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, I – Well, listen, here's the other thing. I mean, now that I've quit my day job, I miss my day job all the time. You know, I I, I was like, boy, um, I'm, I mean, the, 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 it's, it's a very, I mean, I, I've worked in an office for like 25 years with other people and there are all these weird intangible benefits that I didn't realize were intangible benefits (laughs) while I was doing it, you know, I just, you know, uh, well, one thing would be, um, exposure to people that you wouldn't normally meet mm-hmm. you, you know uh, and, and in my case you know it was as i got older there were always young 20-somethings coming into the building who liked things that i'd never heard of mm. <laughs> you know and i'd be like what are you listening to what are you watching well, you know what is that book you know and i love that stuff because it kept yeah. you know it just introduced me to lots of different things um and um and, also and it's, so it's, now, it's, hard, actually, it's
2: kind of hard to pick yourself up as well, right? Like, and to continually self motivate.
0: I don't have a problem with that. I actually can motivate. That's not been a problem for me. I, I know some people who would who do struggle with that. I don't have a, I don't have a struggle with that. But I do. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I I I really enjoy being on a team and and that's how i felt when i worked in publishing at for the for this small scrappy independent press you know like we really did feel there was there was a real nice camaraderie that i missed now that's it i don't know that it's even there anymore because you know since covid they're all working from home and so like that that environment has like shattered anyway um yeah so who, who knows what it's like now but um but i look back on it with a lot of nostalgia and i'm like wow that was that was really fun um
2: Um, I just got another couple of quick things before we get some recommendations from you, Jason. Um, Firstly, do you think your 130,000 beach town set novel still has another life somewhere down the line? And secondly, can you like tease anything about what you're writing on now?
0: I don't think the beach novel has another life down the line. I may salvage it for parts. There's things in it that I think I could use, but I think in its entirety, it probably just, there's something about it that didn't work. And, and I, mm-hmm. I I can't even, like, I spent so much time thinking about it. Like, I can't imagine <laughs> thinking about it again. Um, but my new book um, is a... I don't want to say too much about it because I haven't really talked about it anywhere. But it's another thriller. It's about um, two families, and it's about a wedding. And most of the book takes place at a wedding, like kind of like a weekend wedding, sort of... Uh, scenario and um and i'm having i'm really enjoying it like i'm I'm enjoying writing it um i probably need to write it faster because like i keep quick i keep obsessing over like the first 200 pages and i need to write the second 200 pages mm-hmm. um but you know i do find one of those things where like if you can if you can get the 200 pages to exactly where you want them writing the second half is so much easier because you you've made so many decisions there's just have less to think about in the second half you know mm-hmm. uh, so uh sometimes yeah. I don't beat myself up for, for just going over and over them
2: well it's, it's reassuring to hear that you're enjoying it as well because again you know the kind of tortured writer is a trope but also a very realistic way of being I think for many people so it's always good to hear that the actual when the words are going well it's great
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, they're supposed to be entertaining, right? I mean, I'm trying to, like, entertain people. And, um, I mean, this book is not particularly funny that I'm working on. Impossible Fortress was was really fun to write because, you know, that book actually has, like, jokes in it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, I wish more books could be funny. It's it's tough to be – I love comedy. I love uh, comedy films, which they don't really make anymore. But, uh, and you know, comedy has always had a weird place in fiction. Like there's never really been, it's never been like the most commercial thing. You know, it usually has to be something else. Like it can be a crime novel. That's funny. Yeah. You you can't... Have to do it
2: by stealth, right?
0: Right. Right. Exactly. Um, but,
1: um, which is really weird, isn't it? Cause if ever the, we needed a laugh, it's right now. I know.
0: I know. But, I, but I,
2: again, I wonder if that's like, you know, if you, if you said, oh, this is a comedy book people expect a laugh a page and then you know it's kind of like well no that's not actually what a comedy book necessarily means it's not a joke book we're not 12 yeah, exactly. so. <laughs> <laughs> don't get me wrong i love a joke book my kids have got <laughs> some great joke books would
1: you would you go back to something comedic jason
0: after um, this well, next I think, one i think i just try to like work it in however i can like you yeah. know have a character do something funny that's because of like unique to their You know something you like? I'm like, um, I don't want to say it, but I mean, I I just read something this morning that made me laugh because I'm like, oh, this is a really ridiculous thing for this man to bring as a gift. He's going to his daughter's house for a dinner, and he brings her a new fire extinguisher, and uh, you know, but like that's what (laughs) that thing. He'd be like, you know, you (laughs) could always use another one. You know, (laughs) you already have one in your kitchen. Put it in the bedroom. You know. Yeah. Uh, and I love stuff like that. Like that stuff is just because it's it's based in character and it's relatable. I think everybody knows, like the the guy who would bring the fire extinguisher as a as a dinner party gift. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. It made me laugh.
1: Recommendations, please, Jason. Other books that yes. you've loved that we we would love and we need to go and investigate.
0: Okay, I will. I don't know how many would you like. <laughs> like five. I, oh, okay. I don't have. Oh, I was going to say okay. three. <laughs> three. <laughs> don't mind. <laughs> Ten percent. None of these are terribly <laughs> new. Um, first one is a book called *The Good Nurse* by by um, Charles Graber. It's not a novel, but it reads like a novel. It's a true crime book from a couple of years ago. Okay. Um, recently made into a film. I haven't watched the film. I haven't uh, watched
2: the film, but I ha- I did get to interview the good nurse, the actual good nurse, who's such an amazing person.
0: Oh my gosh! Okay. Oh, it's a beautiful we yeah.
2: need to tell you yeah we um, can tell phil though
0: <laughs> well so for people who don't know the story it's about this guy um who was a nurse in the area where i live he was in pennsylvania new jersey his name is charlie cullen and what he did was um on one hand he was a very good nurse because he always showed up on time and he worked his shifts <laughs> but unfortunately he was also like killing patients by like you know uh giving them insulin and having oh, them yeah. like, those and die and and then when the hospitals figured out what was going on, rather than investigate, because they were so concerned about liability, they're just sort of like, you know, Charlie, we think we think you should move on. And he'd be like, well, can you give me a reference for another job? They'd be like, absolutely. So then he would go to another hospital and do it again, and another hospital, another hospital. He did it for years. They don't know how many people he killed. They think it's somewhere between 300 and 400, which would make him the most prolific serial killer in the United States. And- I should
2: clarify, I didn't interview that Good, the goodness right. of the times. So, I interviewed the actual good nurse, Amy Lockran, uh, who's the one who works alongside Charles right. and helped I mean, bring him down. The amazing
0: thing is that you know the police couldn't catch him, the hospitals couldn't catch him, nobody could catch him. But then this nurse, the good nurse of the the child, actual goodness, <laughs> is the one who and and the way it happens in the book, it's just, it's it's so riveting. Like I, I couldn't put it down. There's an actual um, recording of a conversation that is is. Printed verbatim in the book and it's so suspenseful just a wonderful wonderful book so if you're totally. looking
1: for that on love just found that now if you're looking for that it's, it's charles graeber, and the surname is g-r-a-e-b-e-r if you're looking for that recommendation
0: yeah, so that's the good nurse um another one i think your listeners might like and they might know this one this is kind of an oldie but no one talks about it anymore it's and it's almost out of print you can find it here in the United States, it's barely in print. It looks like it's a very badly published edition. (laughs) Um, But it's the first novel by Ira Levin, um, who's more famous for writing Rosemary's Baby and Stepford Wives and Death Trap. A lot of really very successful um, novels. But his first book was called The Kiss Before Dying. Uh, It's a thriller. I think it came out in 1950-something. Uh, and here's the crazy thing, and Natalie, this is going to, well, this will hurt both of you. Right? Okay. He finished it on his 23rd birthday. Why? Wow. He, he read it when he was 22, and it is as, like, masterful a thriller as, as anything you'll read. There is a reveal midway through this book that is, like, one of the great all-time, like, plot twists, I think. You know, it's up there mm-hmm. with, like, the Gone Girl reveal about the, the diary, you know? It's like mm-hmm. it's like, that kind of, like, wow. what? <laughs> um the book won the Edgar Award for best novel that year. Again, he's 23. Uh it was made into a film twice, uh, once in the 1950s, and then they remade it in the 80s. Um and I reread it recently and I, I think it still holds up really, really well. I mean, you have to approach with a 1950s mentality,
2: um, uh, mm-hmm.
0: but um there's three different sections from three different point of views. He juggles all that really, really well, and and when you hit the 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 twist, you'll know um, it is just so 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 well done. Um,
2: Amazing! I'm adding that to my list.
1: So that's a kiss before dying. Uh, Ira I R A and then Levin L E V I N. And although Jason saying you might struggle to find it in print, I found it immediately in the bookstore that I use digitally. So it's, it's £4.50 okay. uh, here in the UK to buy that. There's an audio book as well, which you can get. So maybe that might be another routine if you can't find actual physical print copy.
0: Yeah. Um, and then the last one I thought about, um, this one is just, this is a anthology that I just find really interesting. And I know you've had Anthony Horowitz on your show. Um, there's this book called The Black Lizard Book of Locked Room Mysteries. And it's just locked room mystery short stories of like impossible crimes you know like like someone is found in the snow it's not necessarily locked rooms like someone will be found in a snow with a knife through their heart but there's there's no footprints leading to or away from the body so like how 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 did it happen um and there are certainly plenty of locked room mysteries where you know the the person is found dead behind closed doors and the mm. windows locked doors locked and how did it happen Um, It's put together by Otto Penzler, who, um, you know, owns the Mysterious Bookshop in New York City. Uh, And he's as much of an authority on, like, mystery fiction as anybody is. Um, And it's just a really, really fun book to dip into. I think there's about 40 stories. Um, There are classics by, like, you know, John Dixon Carr, um, Arthur Conan Doyle, you know it goes up to like Stephen King and and uh, I think Joyce Carol Oates has something in there everyone's sort of taken a swing at it to try mm-hmm. to do the possible crime short story so if you like that sort of thing and I, I get the sense that you both do because I already mm. talking to um, Anthony Horowitz and some other writers uh, I think you'd really enjoy it and, like, and I was really surprised by how well some of these stories you know even the ones that are like 50, 60, 80 years old how, how well they stand, how they stand up
1: now this one might be slightly harder to find I couldn't find this in my digital store but Amazon have got a paperback copy for 37 quid. It's quite steep,
2: isn't it? Sounds like quite a big tome, though.
0: It is a pretty big... It's a pretty hefty... uh, Oh, is it? Right. But it's a pretty hefty paperback. You know, it's probably 800, 800 pages. Right, okay.
2: And can I ask, when you're reading some of those short stories, you know, from some of the finest writers, do you find it inspirational in that you'll kind of read it and go, oh, that's given me an idea?
0: I think so. I mean... It's funny, I was just watching um Twelve Angry Men, the film, you know It's so
2: good. <laughs> I, I rewatched it fairly recently too, and like again, it's one of those ones you're like, yeah, it's so well done.
0: And it's just it is really incredible. And I was thinking, wow, you know, the idea that like you don't know anything about the crime before they get in the jury room, but by the end of the movie, you know everything about the crime, just because you you've heard this whole sort of second narrative from these 12 people talking. And that did get me thinking about. Hmm, how could you use that device for something else you know like yeah. just like as a device um i'm surprised there aren't more stories that do that i mean i imagine it'd be really really hard to do
2: you have to come back and tell us <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh listen we've loved talking to you thanks for making time for us
0: of course um, of course it's a, it's a pleasure and a privilege so thank thank you for having me on hidden pictures
1: great. is um it's, by the time you hear this is it'll be in paperback right it's just like a summer paperback release isn't it
0: i'm not sure what they're doing in the uk in the us it comes out in june right. um and hopefully the uh I, I will make a plug for my paperback because it's going to have um there's an appendix at the back with a lot of illustration outtakes so um even though ah. the book has 70 illustrations there were about i think there were 300 in total like as we were working on it we had lots of alts a lot of a lot of alternates for some of the different drawings and um and some of them are like just as good like they're equally good in their own right so we it's kind of like dvd extras used to be where you get like all this bonus content um the paperback uh in the us is definitely going to have it and i'm trying to convince spear my uk publisher to put it in their paperback too so
2: they totally should cuz that's kind of the copy that you send that i got to read and i love that cuz you could kind of You can see why you made the decisions that you did. But you, yeah, exactly like that. It's DVD bonus extras. It was really fascinating.
1: Okay, so here's the deal. I know that you and I have been doing this a long time. I know we are professional broadcasters, right? Yeah. Uh, I know that we both get irritated when extended family members say, oh, I heard you. You sound very professional. I go, well, that's because it's my job. But isn't there still something spintingly exciting about an author you love coming on your podcast who's saying, Yeah, so I listened back to a few episodes just to see what it was about? What? Yeah. Did sure. you? Thanks. <laughs> 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 Were you the same? Yeah, well, it, right?
2: I, it was more because, again, when. um it was really nice because when he had emailed, uh, which was a lovely thing to do, he'd like, yeah, yeah. I've listened to like the Anthony Horowitz one. It's great. But what I liked more was that then he's like, he's clearly listened to some others now too. It's not like he listened to Anthony. It was like, yeah, it's all right. You know, I'll do it for like, tick my promo box. (laughs) No, he genuinely enjoyed it. Which is great, isn't it? It's really good. It's really good.
1: And, um, yeah, if we can be the home for great writers, that will be something for the to be able to say about the podcast because I think uh, we already
2: are, right? Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, uh... yeah, you're right. No, we are. Yeah, you're right. You are right. Yeah. Go back to our previous seasons and you will find that they are populated with great writers. And there are more great writers to come, right?
2: There are many more great writers to come. Um if you're asking me to list them now i can do me to get out my spreadsheet i can totally do that <laughs> uh joanne harris i believe is on the way which i'm very excited about um and i will find have we not done her before jointly no we haven't i've oh, kind of okay. like i've sort of interacted with her a few times on twitter which is always that weird thing where it's like you know i don't know her in the slightest she doesn't know right, me in the right, slightest right, but you right. kind of because you you know social media is so weird like that thing of Just... you you feel like you know people more than you would they they're still strangers but anyway social media revelation (laughs) whatever um and yeah I think what I'm enjoying as well is just that the conversations we get to have because obviously people come on to talk about their books which they do Mm. but you never quite know where it's going to take you Uh I feel sometimes that might be down to my slightly tangential brain but um it's the only one I've got so yeah go with it
1: don't be hard on your brain. I'm a massive respecter of it.
2: <laughs> and I'm
1: And I'm being serious. Uh, now, and the other thing I like is we can get to discuss the writing processes with them, and they're all very honest.
2: And I find that really inspirational as well. So, you know, I know lots of people listen to podcasts like this because they're writing themselves or they mm. want to write. And mm. so I do hope that, that this does inspire you to, you know, to have the confidence to do that too.
1: Oh, by the way, it sounds like I'm just fawning over you, but um, massive respect to you for Saying about the first book not selling because Mm. obviously I knew that, but I didn't. It's not my story to tell on air, and um, I think it's really important. You know, I mentioned in that podcast you just heard that I done a a book session with Harlan Coben, and he revealed on stage last night that his first three didn't sell. Mm
2: -hmm, He's got mm -hmm.
1: three full ninety thousand plus word books that never sold, and I think similar thing happened to Gillian McAllister. Yeah, and you know it's quite rare that the first one. Goes and takes off quite rare.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And was no, that interesting
1: is. what Jason said? Where he's so he's had a hit. Right. It's yes. a second book. Not interested. No yeah. one's interested. It's like, wow.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, so much of it is to do with timing, I think, as well. But it's mm-hmm. it's hard not to take it personally, I think, when it happens mm-hmm. to you for sure. Um, but I kind of take comfort in things like feedback is like the writing is good and there's no kind of one thing that was wrong with that book, but it's a bit like Jason was saying, there was just something that didn't quite click for everyone to want to love it enough to be able to send it off on its journey into the world. Um, Yeah. And it's just, it's just kind of weird how that happens or not, but I guess that's the alchemy of writing. You know, sometimes it just sort of reaches this, other place maybe um or kind of finds a connection that you couldn't quite envisage when you were writing it but that's what you you hope for that people will really embrace what you've got to say um and hopefully that will happen to me at some point
1: (laughs) i'm convinced it will 100 it will and um i'm sure you listening know me well enough now to know i don't do this but i genuinely wasn't blowing smoke there these two books from jason are really really superb so if you're thinking Maybe you're going away, still the summer, and you think, I need something to read. These are the two. And Impossible Fortress was his first and Hidden Pictures, the second.
2: I just wanted to say, as always, thank you for listening and for supporting what Phil and I do. We really love doing it. We really love discovering new authors. I hadn't read Jason Reculak before, um, and I'm intrigued now to go read his first book. So works on me too. Um, and yeah, thanks for listening.
1: Oh, and well, listen, before you go, um, if you want to, keep helping us and supporting us with what we do so we can keep this books podcast going. Then we've now joined the team at Kofi ko-fi.com slash bestsellers podcast, where basically you can buy us a copper, You can buy us a coffee and that we would treasure and value and would help us to keep the production uh going on the podcast because as we said to you before there's no big operation there's no big machine here it's natalie and me doing everything from the reading to the booking to the research to the interviewing to the editing to the uploading the whole thing is us so if you feel that that's worthy of a cuppa or a coffee we would value that greatly at ko-fi.com slash bestsellers podcast
2: thanks very much